Welcome back, everyone, to the Scarlet Pimpernel. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today we're covering chapters 22 through 24. And now chapter 22, Calais. The weariest nights, the longest days, sooner or later must perforce come to an end. Marguerite had spent over fifteen hours in such acute mental torture as well-nigh drove her crazy. After a sleepless night, she rose early, wild with excitement, dying to start on her journey, terrified lest further obstacles lay in her way. She rose before anyone else in the house was astir, so frightened was she, lest she should miss one golden opportunity of making a start. When she came downstairs, she found Sir Andrew Folks sitting in the coffee room. He had been out half an hour earlier and had gone to the Admiralty Pier, only to find that neither the French packet nor any privately chartered vessel could put out of Dover yet. The storm was then at its fullest, and the tide was on the turn. If the wind did not abate or change, they would perforce have to wait another ten or twelve hours until the next tide, before a start could be made. And the storm had not abated, the wind had not changed, and the tide was rapidly drawing out. Marguerite felt the sickness of despair when she heard this melancholy news. Only the most firm resolution kept her from totally breaking down, and thus adding to the young man's anxiety, which evidently had become very keen. Though he tried to disguise it, Marguerite could see that Sir Andrew was just as anxious as she was to reach his comrade and friend. This enforced inactivity was terrible to them both. How they spent that wearisome day at Dover, Marguerite could never afterwards say. She was in terror of showing herself, lest Chauvelin's spies happened to be about, so she had a private sitting-room, and she and Sir Andrew sat there hour after hour, trying to take, at long intervals, some perfunctory meals, which little Sally would bring them, with nothing to do but to think, to conjecture, and only occasionally to hope. The storm had abated just too late. The tide was by then too far out to allow a vessel to put off to sea. The wind had changed, and was settling down to a comfortable northwesterly breeze, a veritable godsend for a speedy passage across to France. And there those two waited, wondering if the hour would ever come when they could finally make a start. There had been one happy interval in this long, weary day, and that was when Sir Andrew went down once again to the pier, and presently came back to tell Marguerite that he had chartered a quick schooner, whose skipper was ready to put to sea the moment the tide was favorable. For that moment the hours seemed less wearisome, there was less hopelessness in the waiting, and at last, at five o'clock in the afternoon, Marguerite, closely veiled and followed by Sir Andrew Folks, who, in the guise of her lackey, was carrying a heavy load of baggage, found her way down to the pier. Once on board, the keen, fresh sea air revived her. The breeze was just strong enough to nicely swell the sails of the foam crest as she cut her way merrily towards the open. The sunset was glorious after the storm, and Marguerite, as she watched the white cliffs of Dover gradually disappearing from view, felt more at peace and once more almost hopeful. Sir Andrew was full of kind attentions, and she felt how lucky she had been to have him by her side in this, her great trouble. Gradually the grey coast of France began to emerge from the fast-gathering evening mists. One or two lights could be seen flickering, and the spires of several churches to rise out of the surrounding haze. Half an hour later Marguerite had landed upon French shore. She was back in that country where at this very moment men slaughtered their fellow creatures by the hundreds, and sent innocent women and children in thousands to the block. The very aspect of the country and its people, even in this remote seacoast town, spoke of that seething revolution, 300 miles away, in beautiful Paris, now rendered hideous by the constant flow of the blood of her noblest sons, 
by the wailing of the widows and the cries of fatherless children. The men all wore red caps in various stages of cleanliness, but all with the tricolor cockade pinned on the left-hand side. Marguerite noticed with a shudder that, instead of the laughing, merry countenance habitual to her own countrymen, their faces now invariably wore a look of sly distrust. Every man nowadays was a spy upon his fellows. The most innocent word uttered in jest might at any time be brought up as a proof of aristocratic tendencies, or of treachery against the people. Even the women went about with a curious look of fear and of hate lurking in their brown eyes, and all watched Marguerite as she stepped on shore, followed by Sir Andrew, and murmured as she passed along, Sacre Saristos, or else Sacre Anglais. Otherwise their presence excited no further comment. Calais, even in those days, was in constant business communication with England, and English merchants were often to be seen on this coast. It was well known that in view of the heavy duties in England, a vast deal of French wines and brandies were smuggled across. This pleased the French bourgeois immensely. He liked to see the English government and the English king, both of whom he hated, cheated out of their revenues, and an English smuggler was always a welcome guest at the tumble-down taverns of Calais and Boulogne. So perhaps, as Sir Andrew gradually directed Marguerite to the tortuous streets of Calais, many of the population, who turned with an oath to look at the strangers clad in the English fashion, thought that they were bent on purchasing dutiable articles for their own fog-ridden country, and gave them no more than a passing thought. Marguerite, however, wondered how her husband's tall, massive figure could have passed through Calais unobserved. She marveled what disguise he assumed to do his noble work, without exciting too much attention. Without exchanging more than a few words, Sir Andrew was leading her right across the town, to the other side from that where they had landed, and on the way toward Cap Grenet. The streets were narrow, tortuous, and mostly evil-smelling, with a mixture of stale fish and damp cellar odors. There had been heavy rain here during the storm last night, and sometimes Marguerite sank ankle-deep in the mud, for the roads were not lighted save by the occasional glimmer from a lamp inside a house. But she did not heed any of these petty discomforts. "'We may meet Blakely at that Chagri,' Sir Andrew had said, when they landed, and she was walking as if on a carpet of rose-leaves, for she was going to meet him almost at once. At last they reached their destination. Sir Andrew evidently knew the road, for he had walked unerringly in the dark, and had not asked his way from anyone. It was too dark then for Marguerite to notice the outside aspect of this house. The Chagri, as Sir Andrew had called it, was evidently a small wayside inn on the outskirts of Calais, and on the way to Grinet. It lay some little distance from the coast, for the sound of the sea seemed to come from afar. Sir Andrew knocked at the door with the knob of his cane, and from within Marguerite heard a sort of grunt and the muttering of a number of oaths. Sir Andrew knocked again, this time more peremptorily. More oaths were heard, and then shuffling steps seemed to draw near the door. Presently this was thrown open, and Marguerite found herself on the threshold of the most dilapidated, most squalid room she had ever seen in her life. The paper, such as it was, was hanging from the walls in strips. There did not seem to be a single piece of furniture in the room that could, by the wildest stretch of the imagination, be called whole. Most of the chairs had broken backs. Others had no seats to them. One corner of the table was propped up with a bundle of faggots. Those where the fourth leg had been broken. In one corner of the room there was a huge hearth, over which hung a stockpot, with a not altogether unpalatable odor of hot soup emanating therefrom. On one side of the room, high up in the wall, there was a species of loft, before which hung a tattered blue-and-white checked curtain. A rickety set of steps led up to this loft. 
"'on the great bare walls with their colorless paper, "'all stained with buried filth. "'There were chalked up at intervals in great bold characters "'the words, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, "'Freedom, Equality, and Brotherhood. "'The whole of this sordid abode was dimly lighted "'by an evil-smelling oil lamp "'which hung from the rickety rafters of the ceiling. "'It all looked so horribly squalid, "'so dirty and uninviting, "'that Marguerite hardly dared to cross the threshold.' Sir Andrew, however, had stepped unhesitatingly forward. "'English travellers, citoyenne,' he said boldly, and speaking in French. The individual who had come to the door in response to Sir Andrew's knock, and who, presumably, was the owner of this squalid abode, was an elderly, heavily-built peasant, dressed in a dirty blue blouse, heavy sabots, from which wisps of straw protruded all around, shabby blue trousers, and the inevitable red cap with the tricolor cockade, "'that proclaimed his momentary political views. "'He carried a short wooden pipe "'from which the odor of rank tobacco emanated. "'He looked with some suspicion "'and a great deal of contempt at the two travelers, "'muttered, "'Sacre Anglais!' "'and spat upon the ground "'to further show his independence of spirit. "'But, nevertheless, "'he stood aside to let them enter, "'no doubt well aware that these same "'Sacre Anglais always had well-filled purses. "'Oh, Lord!' said Marguerite, "'as she advanced into the room, "'holding her handkerchief to her dainty nose. "'What a dreadful hole! "'Are you sure this is the place?' "'Aye, tis the place, sure enough,' "'replied the young man, "'as, with his lace-edged, fashionable handkerchief, "'he dusted a chair for Marguerite to sit on. "'But I vow I never saw a more villainous hole. "'Faith!' she said, "'looking round with some curiosity "'and a great deal of horror "'at the dilapidated walls, "'the broken chairs, the rickety table.' "'It certainly does not look inviting.' "'The landlord of the Chat Gris, by name, by name Brogard, "'had taken no further notice of his guests. "'He concluded that presently they would order supper, "'and in the meanwhile it was not for a free citizen to show deference, "'or even courtesy to anyone, however smartly they might be dressed. "'By the hearth sat a huddled-up figure clad, seemingly, mostly in rags. "'That figure was apparently a woman, "'although even that would have been hard to distinguish except for the cap,' "'which had once been white, "'and for what looked like the semblance of a petticoat. "'She was sitting mumbling to herself, "'and from time to time stirring the brew in her stockpot. "'Hey, my friend,' said Sir Andrew at last, "'we should like some supper.' "'The citoyen there,' he added, "'pointing to the huddled-up bundle of rags by the hearth, "'is concocting some delicious soup, I'll warrant, "'and my mistress has not tasted food for several hours.' "'It took Brogard some few moments to consider the question.' A free citizen does not respond too readily to the wishes of those who happen to require something of him. Sacre Aristos, he murmured, and once more spat upon the ground. Then he went very slowly up to a dresser which stood in a corner of the room. From this he took an old pewter soup tureen, and slowly, and without a word, he handed it to his better half, who in the same silence began filling the tureen with the soup out of her stockpot. Marguerite had watched all these preparations with absolute horror. "'were it not for the earnestness of her purpose, "'she would incontinently have fled from this abode of dirt and evil smells. "'Faith, our host and hostess are not cheerful people,' said Sir Andrew, "'seeing the look of horror on Marguerite's face. "'I would I could offer you a more hearty and more appetizing meal, "'but I think you will find the soup edible and the wine good. "'These people wallow in dirt, but live well as a rule.' "'Nay, I pray you, Sir Andrew,' she said gently, "'Be not anxious about me. 
"'My mind is scarce inclined to dwell on thoughts of supper. "'Brogard was slowly pursuing his gruesome preparations. "'He had placed a couple of spoons, also two glasses on the table, "'both of which Sir Andrew took the precaution of wiping carefully. "'Brogard had also produced a bottle of wine and some bread, "'and Marguerite made an effort to draw her chair to the table "'and to make some pretense at eating. "'Sir Andrew, as befitting his role of lackey, stood behind her chair. "'Nay, madam, I pray you,' he said, "'seeing that Marguerite seemed quite unable to eat. "'I beg of you to try and swallow some food. "'Remember, you have need of all your strength.' "'The soup certainly was not bad. "'It smelled and tasted good. "'Marguerite might have enjoyed it, "'but for the horrible surroundings. "'She broke the bread, however, "'and drank some of the wine. "'Nay, Sir Andrew,' she said, "'I do not like to see you standing. "'You have need of food just as much as I have. "'This creature will only think that I am an eccentric Englishwoman "'eloping with her lackey. "'If you'll sit down and partake of this semblance of supper beside me.' "'Indeed, Brogard, having placed what was strictly necessary upon the table, "'seemed not to trouble himself any further about his guest. "'The mayor Brogard had quietly shuffled out of the room, "'and the man stood and lounged about, "'smoking his evil-smelling pipe, "'sometimes under Marguerite's very nose.' "'as any free-born citizen who is anybody's equal should do. "'Confound the brute!' said Sir Andrew, with a native British wrath, "'as Brogard leaned up against the table, "'smoking and looking down superciliously at these two sacre anglais. "'In heaven's name, man!' admonished Marguerite, hurriedly, "'seeing that Sir Andrew, with British-born instinct, "'was ominously clenching his fist. "'And remember that you are in France, "'and that in this year of grace this is the temper of the people.' "'I'd like to scrag the brute!' "'muttered Sir Andrew savagely. "'He had taken Marguerite's advice "'and sat next to her at table, "'and they were both making noble efforts "'to deceive one another "'by pretending to eat and drink. "'I pray you,' said Marguerite, "'keep the creature in a good temper "'so that he may answer the questions "'we must put to him.' "'I'll do my best, but be gad! "'I'd sooner scrag him than question him.' "'Hey, my friend,' "'he said pleasantly in French, "'and tapping Brogard lightly on his shoulder.' "'Do you see many of our quality along these parts? "'Many English travellers, I mean.' "'Brogard looked round at him, over his near shoulder, "'puffed away at his pipe for a moment or two "'as he was in no hurry, and then muttered, "'Phew! Sometimes!' "'Ah!' said Sir Andrew carelessly. "'English travellers always know where they can get a good wine, eh, my friend?' "'Now tell me. "'Milady was desiring to know if by any chance "'you happened to have seen a great friend of hers, "'an English gentleman,' "'who often comes to Calais on business. "'He is tall, and recently was on his way to Paris. "'My lady hoped to have met him in Calais.' "'Marguerite tried not to look at Brogard, "'lest she should betray before him "'the burning anxiety with which she waited for his reply. "'But a free-born French citizen "'is never in any hurry to answer questions. "'Brogard took his time, and then said very slowly, "'Meh! Tall Englishman? "'Today?' "'Yes.' "'You have seen him?' "'asked Sir Andrew carelessly. "'Yes, today,' muttered Brogard, sullenly. "'Then he quietly took Sir Andrew's hat from a chair close by, "'put it on his own head, tugged at his dirty blouse, "'and generally tried to express in pantomime "'that the individual in question were very fine clothes. "'Sacre Aristo,' he muttered. "'That tall Englishman!' "'Marguerite could scarce repress a scream. "'It's Sir Percy right enough,' she murmured. "'and not even in disguise.' "'She smiled in the midst of all her anxiety "'and through her gathering tears "'at thought of the ruling passion strong in death, 
"'of Percy running into the wildest, maddest dangers, "'with the latest cut coat upon his back "'and the laces of his jabot unruffled. "'Oh, the foolishness of it!' she sighed. "'Quick, Sir Andrew, ask the man where he went.' "'Ah, yes, my friend,' said Sir Andrew, "'addressing Brogard, with the same assumption of carelessness. "'My lord always wears beautiful clothes. "'The tall Englishman you saw was certainly my lady's friend. "'And he is gone, you say?' "'He went, yes.' "'But he's coming back, here. "'He ordered supper.' "'Sir Andrew put his hand with a quick gesture of warning "'upon Marguerite's arm. "'It came none too soon, "'for the next moment her wild, mad joy would have betrayed her. "'He was safe and well, was coming back here presently. "'She would see him in a few moments, perhaps. "'The wildness of her joy seemed almost more than she could bear. "'Here,' she said to Brogard, "'who seemed suddenly to have been transformed in her eyes "'into some heaven-born messenger of bliss. "'Here? "'Did you say the English gentleman was coming back here?' "'The heaven-born messenger of bliss spat upon the floor "'to express his contempt for all and sundry aristos "'who chose to haunt the chat gris. "'Phew!' he muttered. "'He ordered supper. "'He will come back. "'Sacre anglais!' he added, "'by way of protest against all this fuss for a mere Englishman. "'But where is he now?' "'Do you know?' she asked eagerly, "'placing her dainty white hand upon the dirty sleeve of his blue blouse. "'He went to get a horse and cart,' said Brogard, laconically, "'as, with a surly gesture, he took off that pretty hand "'which princes had been proud to kiss. "'At what time did he go?' "'But Brogard had evidently had enough of these questionings. "'He did not think that it was fitting for a citizen, "'who was the equal of anybody, "'to be thus catechized by these sacrisaristos, "'even though they were rich English ones.' It was distinctly more fitting to his newborn dignity to be rude as possible. It was a sure sign of servility to meekly reply to civil questions. "'I don't know,' he said in a surly manner. "'I've said enough. "'Voyons, les aristos. "'He came today. He ordered supper. He went out. He'll come back. "'Voila!' And with this parting assertion of his rights as a citizen and a free man, to be as rude as he well pleased, Brogard shuffled out of the room banging the door behind him. We'll return with Chapter 23, right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 23, Hope. Faith, madam, said Sir Andrew, seeing that Marguerite seemed desirous to call her surly host back again. I think we'd better leave him alone. We shall not get anything more out of him, and we might arouse his suspicions. "'One never knows what spies might be lurking around these godforsaken places.' "'What care I?' she replied lightly. "'Now I know that my husband is safe, and that I shall see him almost directly.' "'Hush!' he said, in genuine alarm, for she had talked quite loudly, in the fullness of her glee. "'The very walls have ears in France these days.' He rose quickly from the table, and walked round the bare, squalid room, listening attentively at the door, through which Brogard had just disappeared and whence only muttered oaths and shuffling footsteps could be heard. He also ran up the rickety steps that led to the attic, to assure himself that there were no spies of Chauvelin's about the place. "'Are we alone, monsieur? My lackey?' said Marguerite, gaily, as the young man once more sat down beside her. "'May we talk?' "'As cautiously as possible,' he entreated. "'Faith, man, but you wear a glum face. As for me—' "'I could dance with joy. "'Surely there is no longer any cause for fear. "'Our boat is on the beach, "'the foam crest not two miles out to sea, 
"'and my husband will be here, "'under this very roof, "'within the next half-hour, perhaps. "'Sure, there's not to hinder us. "'Chauvelin and his gang have not yet arrived.' "'Nay, madame, that, I fear, we do not know.' "'What do you mean? "'He was at Dover at the same time that we were. "'Held up by the same storm, which kept us from starting. "'Exactly. "'But I did not speak of it before, for I feared to alarm you. "'I saw him on the beach not five minutes before we embarked. "'At least, I swore to myself at that time that it was himself. "'He was disguised as a curé, so that Satan, his own guardian, would scarce have known him. "'But I heard him, then, bargaining for a vessel to take him swiftly to Calais, "'and he must have set sail less than an hour after we did.' Marguerite's face had quickly lost its look of joy. The terrible danger in which Percy stood, now that he was actually on French soil, became suddenly and horribly clear to her. Chauvelin was close upon his heels. Here in Calais, the astute diplomatist was all-powerful. A word from him, and Percy could be tracked and arrested, and... Every drop of blood seemed to freeze in her veins. Not even during the moments of her wildest anguish in England had she so completely realized the eminence of the peril in which her husband stood. Chauvelin had sworn to bring the Scarlet Pimpernel to the guillotine, and now the daring plotter, whose anonymity hitherto had been his safeguard, stood revealed through her own hand to his most bitter, most relentless enemy. Chauvelin, when he waylaid Lord Tony and Sir Andrew Folkes in the coffee-room of the Fisherman's Rest, had obtained possession of all the plans of this latest expedition— Armand St. Just, the Comte de Tournay, and other fugitive royalists were to have met the Scarlet Pimpernel, or rather, as it had been originally arranged, two of his emissaries, on this day, the 2nd of October, at a place evidently known to the League, and vaguely alluded to as the Père Blanchard's Hut. Armand, whose connection with the Scarlet Pimpernel and disavowal of the brutal policy of the Reign of Terror was still unknown to his countrymen, had left England a little more than a week ago, "'carrying with him the necessary instructions "'which would enable him to meet the other fugitives "'and to convey them to this place of safety. "'This much Marguerite had fully understood from the first, "'and Sir Andrew Folkes had confirmed her surmises. "'She knew, too, that when Sir Percy realized "'that his own plans and his directions to his lieutenants "'had been stolen by Chauvelin, "'it was too late to communicate with Armand "'or to send fresh instructions to the fugitives. "'They would, of necessity, be at the appointed time and place.' "'not knowing how grave was the danger "'which now awaited their brave rescuer. "'Blakeney, who as usual had planned "'and organized the whole expedition, "'would not allow any of his younger comrades "'to run the risk of almost certain capture. "'Hence his hurried note to them at Lord Grenville's ball. "'Start myself to-morrow. Alone. "'And now with his identity known to his most bitter enemy, "'his every step would be dogged "'the moment he set foot in France. "'He would be tracked by Chauvelin's emissaries.' "'followed until he reached that mysterious hut "'where the fugitives were waiting for him, "'and there the trap would be closed on him and on them. "'There was but one hour, "'the hour's start which Marguerite and Sir Andrew had of their enemy, "'in which to warn Percy of the imminence of his danger, "'and to persuade him to give up the foolhardy expedition "'which could only end in his own death. "'But there was that one hour. "'Chauvelin knows of this inn from the papers he stole,' "'said Sir Andrew earnestly. "'and on landing we'll make straight for it. "'He has not landed yet,' she said. "'We have an hour's start on him, "'and Percy will be here directly. "'We shall be mid-channel ere Chauvelin has realized "'that we have slipped through his fingers.' "'She spoke excitedly and eagerly, "'wishing to infuse into her young friend the hope, "'some of that buoyant hope which still clung to her heart. "'But he shook his head sadly. 
"'Silent again, Sir Andrew?' "'She said with some impatience. "'Why do you shake your head and look so glum?' "'Faith, madam,' he replied, "'tis only because in making your rose-colored plans "'you are forgetting the most important factor.' "'What in the world do you mean? "'I am forgetting nothing. "'What factor do you mean?' "'she added, with more impatience. "'It stands six foot odd high,' "'replied Sir Andrew, quietly, "'and hath the name Percy Blakeney. "'I don't understand,' she murmured. "'Do you think that Blakeney would leave Calais "'without having accomplished what he set out to do?' "'You mean?' "'You mean? "'There's the old Comte de Tournay.' "'The Comte?' "'She murmured. "'And St. Just. "'And others.' "'My brother!' she said with a heartbroken sob of anguish. "'Heaven help me, but I fear I had forgotten. "'Fugitives as they are, "'these men at this moment await with perfect confidence "'and unshaken faith the arrival of the Scarlet Pimpernel, "'who has pledged his honor to take them safely across the channel. "'Indeed, she had forgotten. "'With the sublime selfishness of a woman who loves with her whole heart, "'she had in the last twenty-four hours had no thoughts save for him. "'His precious, noble life, his danger, he—' "'the loved one, the brave hero. "'He alone dwelt in her mind. "'My brother,' she murmured, "'as one by one the heavy tears gathered in her eyes, "'as memory came back to her of Armand, "'the companion and darling of her childhood, "'the man for whom she had committed the deadly sin "'which had so helplessly imperiled her brave husband's life. "'Sir Percy Blakeney would not be the trusted, "'honored leader of a score of English gentlemen,' "'said Sir Andrew proudly. "'if he abandoned those who placed their trust in him. "'As for breaking his word, the very thought is preposterous.' "'There was silence for a moment or two. "'Marguerite had buried her face in her hands "'and was letting the tears slowly trickle through her trembling fingers. "'The young man said nothing. "'His heart ached for this beautiful woman in her awful grief. "'All along he had felt the terrible impasse "'in which her own rash act had plunged them all. "'He knew his friend and leader so well.' "'with his reckless daring, his mad bravery, "'his worship of his own word of honor. "'Sir Andrew knew that Blakeney would brave any danger, "'run the wildest risks sooner than break it, "'and, with Chauvelin at his very heels, "'would make a final attempt, however desperate, "'to rescue those who trusted in him. "'Faith, Sir Andrew,' said Marguerite at last, "'making brave efforts to dry her tears. "'You are right.' "'and I would not now shame myself "'by trying to dissuade him from doing his duty. "'As you say, I should plead in vain. "'God grant him strength and ability,' "'she added fervently and resolutely, "'to outwit his pursuers. "'He will not refuse to take you with him, perhaps, "'when he starts on his noble work. "'Between you, you will have cunning as well as valor. "'God guard you both. "'In the meanwhile, I think we should lose no time.' "'I still believe that his safety depends upon his knowing "'that Chauvelin is on his track. "'Undoubtedly. "'He has wonderful resources at his command. "'As soon as he is aware of his danger, "'he will exercise more caution. "'His ingenuity is a veritable miracle. "'Then what say you to a voyage of reconnaissance in the village "'while I wait here against his coming? "'You might come across Percy's track "'and thus save valuable time. "'If you find him, tell him to beware. "'His bitterest enemy is on his heels.' "'but this is such a villainous hole for you to wait in.' "'Nay, that I do not mind. "'But you might ask our surly host "'if he could let me wait in another room, "'where I could be safer from the prying eyes "'of any chance traveller. "'Offer him some ready money, 
"'so that he should not fail to give me word "'the moment the tall Englishman returns.' "'She spoke quite calmly, even cheerfully now, "'thinking out her plans, ready for the worst if need be. "'She would show no more weakness. "'She would prove herself worthy of him, "'who was about to give his life for the sake of his fellow men. "'Sir Andrew obeyed her without further comment. "'Instinctively he felt that hers now was the stronger mind. "'He was willing to give himself over to her guidance, "'to become the hand, whilst she was the directing head. "'He went to the door of the inner room, "'through which Brogard and his wife had disappeared before, and knocked. "'As usual, he was answered by a salvo of muttered oaths. "'Hey, friend Brogard,' said the young man peremptorily, "'my lady would wish to rest here a while. "'Could you give her the use of another room? "'She wishes to be alone.' "'He took some money out of his pocket "'and allowed it to jingle significantly in his hand. "'Brogard had opened the door "'and listened, with his usual surly apathy, "'to the young man's request. "'At the sight of the gold, however, "'his lazy attitude relaxed slightly. "'He took his pipe from his mouth "'and shuffled into the room. "'He then pointed over his shoulder "'at the attic up in the wall. Huh, she can wait up there,' "'he said with a grunt. "'It's comfortable, and I have no other room.' "'Nothing could be better,' said Marguerite in English. She at once realized the advantages such a position hidden from view would give her. "'Given the money, Sir Andrew, I shall be quite happy up there, and can see everything without being seen.' She nodded to Brogard, who condescended to go up to the attic and to shake up the straw that lay on the floor. "'May I entreat you, madam, to do nothing rash,' said Sir Andrew, as Marguerite prepared in her turn to ascend the rickety flight of steps. "'Remember,' "'This place is infested with spies. "'Do not, I beg of you, reveal yourself to Sir Percy, "'unless you are absolutely certain that you are alone with him.' "'Even as he spoke, he felt how unnecessary was this caution. "'Marguerite was as calm, as clear-headed as any man. "'There was no fear of her doing anything that was rash. "'Nay,' she said, with a slight attempt at cheerfulness, "'that can I faithfully promise you. "'I would not jeopardize my husband's life.' "'nor yet his plans, by speaking to him before strangers. "'Have no fear. I will watch my opportunity "'and serve him in the manner I think is best.' "'Brogard had come down the steps again, "'and Marguerite was ready to go up to her safe retreat. "'I dare not kiss your hand, madam,' said Sir Andrew, "'as she began to mount the steps. "'Since I am your lackey, but I pray you be of good cheer. "'If I do not come across Blakely in half an hour, "'I shall return, expecting to find him here.' "'Yes, that will be best. "'We can afford to wait for half an hour. "'Chauvelin cannot possibly be here before that. "'God grant that either you or I "'may have seen Percy by then. "'Good luck to you, friend. "'Have no fear for me.' "'Lightly she mounted the rickety wooden steps "'that led to the attic. "'Brogard was taking no further heed of her. "'She could make herself comfortable there, "'or not, as she chose. "'Sir Andrew watched her until she had reached the loft "'and sat down upon the straw.' She pulled the tattered curtains across, and the young man noted that she was singularly well placed there, for seeing and hearing, whilst remaining unobserved. He had paid Brogard well. The surly old innkeeper would have no object in betraying her. Then Sir Andrew prepared to go. At the door he turned once again and looked up at the loft. Through the ragged curtains Marguerite's sweet face was peeping down at him, and the young man rejoiced to see that it looked serene, and even gently smiling. With a final nod of farewell to her, he walked out into the night. We'll return with Chapter 24, right after this sponsor message. 
the next quarter of an hour went by swiftly and noiselessly. In the room downstairs, Brogard had for a while busied himself with clearing the table and rearranging it for another guest. It was because she watched these preparations that Marguerite found the time slipping by more pleasantly. It was for Percy that this semblance of supper was being got ready. Evidently Brogard had a certain amount of respect for the tall Englishman, as he seemed to take some trouble in making the place look a trifle less uninviting than it had done before. He even produced, from some hidden recess in the old dresser, what actually looked like a tablecloth, and when he spread it out and saw it was full of holes, he shook his head dubiously for a while, then was at much pain so to spread it over the table as to hide most of its blemishes. Then he got out a serviette, also old and ragged, but possessing some measure of cleanliness, and with this he carefully wiped the glasses, spoons, and plates which he put on the table. Marguerite could not help smiling to herself as she watched all these preparations, which Brogard accomplished to an accompaniment of muttered oaths. Clearly the great height and bulk of the Englishman, or perhaps the weight of his fist, had overawed this free-born citizen of France, or he would never have been in such trouble for any sacre aristo. When the table was set, such as it was, Brogard surveyed it with evident satisfaction. He then dusted one of the chairs with a corner of his blouse, gave a stir to the stockpot, threw a fresh bundle of faggots onto the fire, and slouched out of the room. Marguerite was left alone with her reflections. She had spread her traveling cloak over the straw, and was sitting fairly comfortably, as the straw was fresh, and the evil odors from below came up to her only in a modified form. But, momentarily, she was almost happy, happy because, when she peeped through the tattered curtains, she could see a rickety chair, a torn tablecloth, a glass, a plate, and a spoon. That was all. But those mute and ugly things seemed to say to her that they were waiting for Percy, that soon, very soon, he would be here, that the squalid room being still empty, they would be alone together. That thought was so heavenly that Marguerite closed her eyes in order to shut out everything but that. In a few minutes she would be alone with him. She would run down the ladder and let him see her. Then he would take her in his arms, and she would let him see that, after that, she would gladly die for him, and with him, for earth could hold no greater happiness than that. And then what would happen? She could not even remotely conjecture. She knew, of course, that Sir Andrew was right, that Percy would do everything he had set out to accomplish, that she, now she was here, could do nothing, beyond warning him to be cautious, since Chauvelin himself was on his track. After having cautioned him, she would perforce have to see him go off upon his terrible and daring mission. She could not even with a word or look attempt to keep him back. She would have to obey whatever he told her to do, even perhaps have to efface herself and wait in indescribable agony, whilst he, perhaps, went to his death. But even that seemed less terrible to bear than the thought that he should never know how much she loved him. That, at any rate, would be spared her. The squalid room itself, which seemed to be waiting for him, told her that he would be here soon. Suddenly her oversensitive ears caught the sound of distant footsteps drawing near. Her heart gave a wild leap of joy. Was it Percy at last? No. The step did not seem quite as long, nor quite as firm as his. She also thought that she could hear two distinct sets of footsteps. Yes, that was it. Two men were coming this way. Two strangers, perhaps, to get a drink, or... "'but she had not time to conjecture, "'for presently there was a peremptory call at the door, "'and the next moment it was violently thrown open from the outside, "'whilst a rough, commanding voice shouted, "'Hey, Citoyen Brogard! Hola!' "'Marguerite could not see the newcomers, "'but through a hole in one of the curtains "'she could observe one portion of the room below. 
she heard Brogard's shuffling footsteps as he came out of the inner room muttering his usual string of oaths. On seeing the strangers, however, he paused in the middle of the room, well within range of Marguerite's vision, looked at them with even more withering contempt than he had bestowed upon his former guests, and muttered, "'Sacré soutain!' Marguerite's heart seemed all at once to stop beating. Her eyes, large and dilated, had fastened on one of the newcomers, who at this point had taken a quick step forward towards Brogard. He was dressed in the soutane, broad-brimmed hat, and buckled shoes habitual to the French curé. But as he stood opposite the innkeeper, he threw open his soutane for a moment, displaying the tricolor scarf of officialism, which sight officially had the effect of transforming Brogard's attitude of contempt into one of cringing obsequiousness. It was the sight of this French curé, which seemed to freeze the very blood in Marguerite's veins. She could not see his face, which was shaded by his broad-brimmed hat, but she recognized the thin, bony hands, the slight stoop, the whole gait of the man. It was Chauvelin. The horror of the situation struck her as with a physical blow. The awful disappointment, the dread of what was to come, made her very senses real, and she needed almost superhuman effort not to fall senseless beneath it all. "'A plate of soup and a bottle of wine,' said Chauvelin imperiously to Brogard. "'Then clear out of here, understand? I want to be alone.' Silently, and without any muttering this time, Brogard obeyed. Chauvelin sat down at the table, which had been prepared for the tall Englishman, and the innkeeper busied himself obsequiously around him, dishing up the soup and pouring out the wine. The man who had entered with Chauvelin, and whom Marguerite could not see, stood waiting close by the door. At a brusque sign from Chauvelin, Brogard had hurried back to the inner room, and the former now beckoned to the man who had accompanied him. In him, Marguerite at once recognized Descas, Chauvelin's secretary and confidential factotum, whom she had often seen in Paris in the days gone by. He crossed the room, and for a moment or two listened attentively at the Brogard's door. "'Not listening?' asked Chauvelin curtly. "'No, citoyen. For a second, Marguerite dreaded lest Chauvelin should order Descas to search the place. What would happen if she were to be discovered? She hardly dared to imagine. Fortunately, however, Chauvelin seemed more impatient to talk to his secretary than afraid of spies, for he called Descas quickly back to his side. "'The English schooner?' he asked. "'She was lost sight of at sundown, Citoyenne,' replied Descas, but was then making west towards Cap Grines. "'Ah, good,' muttered Chauvelin. "'And now, about Captain Jutley. What did he say?' "'He assured me that all the orders you sent him last week have been implicitly obeyed.' All the roads which converge to this place have been patrolled night and day ever since, and the beach and cliffs have been most rigorously searched and guarded. Does he know where this Père Blanchard's hut is? No, Citoyen. Nobody seems to know of it by that name. There are any amount of fishermen's huts all along the coast, of course, but... That'll do. Now about tonight, interrupted Chauvelin, impatiently. The roads and the beach are patrolled as usual, Citoyen. "'and Captain Jutley awaits further orders. "'Go back to him at once, then. "'Tell him to send reinforcements to the various patrols, "'and especially to those along the beach. "'Do you understand?' "'Chauvelin spoke curtly and to the point, "'and every word he uttered struck at Marguerite's heart "'like the death-knell of her fondest hopes. "'The men,' he continued, "'are to keep the sharpest possible lookout "'for any stranger who may be walking, riding, or driving "'along the road or the beach.' more especially for a tall stranger, whom I need not describe further, 
as probably he will be disguised, but he cannot very well conceal his height, except by stooping. Do you understand? Perfectly, citoyen, replied Discas. As soon as any of the men have sighted a stranger, two of them are to keep him in view. The man who loses sight of the tall stranger, after he's once seen, will pay for his negligence with his life. But one man is to ride straight back here and report to me. Is that clear? Absolutely clear, Zitoyen. Very well, then. Go and see Jutley at once. See the reinforcements start off for the patrol duty. Then ask the captain to let you have half a dozen more men and bring them here with you. You can be back in ten minutes. Go. Descas saluted and went to the door. As Marguerite, sick with horror, listened to Chauvelin's directions to his underling, the whole of the plan for the capture of the Scarlet Pimpernel became appallingly clear to her. Chauvelin wished that the fugitives should be left in false security, waiting in their hidden retreat until Percy joined them. Then the daring plotter was to be surrounded and caught red-handed, in the very act of aiding and abetting royalists, who were traitors to the Republic. Thus, if his capture were noised abroad, even the British government could not legally protest in his favor. Having plotted with the enemies of the French government, France had the right to put him to death. Escape for him and them would be impossible. All the roads patrolled and watched, the trap well set, the net wide at present, but drawing together tighter and tighter, until it closed upon the daring plotter, whose superhuman cunning could not now rescue him from its meshes. Disgust was about to go, but Chauvelin once more called him back. Marguerite vaguely wondered what further devilish plans could have formed in order to entrap one brave man, alone, against two score of others. She looked at him as he turned to speak to Disgas. She could just see his face beneath the broad-brimmed curé's hat. There was at that moment so much deadly hatred, such fiendish malice in the thin face and pale small eyes, that Marguerite's last hope died in her heart, for she felt that from this man she could expect no mercy. "'I had forgotten,' repeated Chauvelin, with a weird chuckle, as he rubbed his bony, talon-like hands one against the other with a gesture of fiendish satisfaction. "'The tall stranger may show fight. In any case, no shooting, remember, except as a last resort. I want him alive, if possible.' He laughed, as Dante had told us that the devils laugh at sight of the torture of the damned. Marguerite had thought that by now she had lived through the whole gaunt of horror and anguish that human heart could bear. Yet now, when disgust left the house— and she remained alone in this lonely, squalid room, with that fiend for company. She felt as if all she had suffered was nothing compared with this. He continued to laugh and chuckle to himself for a while, rubbing his hands together in anticipation of his triumph. His plans were well laid, and he might well triumph. Not a loophole was left through which the bravest, the most cunning man might escape. Every road guarded, every corner watched, and in that lonely hut somewhere on the coast, a small band of fugitives waiting for their rescuer, and leading him to his death? Nay, to worse than death. That fiend there, in a holy man's garb, was too much of a devil to allow a brave man to die the quick, sudden death of a soldier at the post of duty. He, above all, longed to have the cunning enemy, who had so long baffled him, helpless in his power. He wished to gloat over him, to enjoy his downfall." to inflict upon him what moral and mental torture a deadly hatred alone can devise. The brave eagle, captured, and with noble wings clipped, was doomed to endure the gnawing of the rat. And she, his wife, who loved him, and who had brought him to this, 
could do nothing to help him. Nothing save to hope for death by his side, and for one brief moment in which to tell him that her love, whole, true, and passionate, was entirely his. Chauvelin was now sitting close to the table. He had taken off his hat, and Marguerite could just see the outline of his thin profile and pointed chin as he bent over his meager supper. He was evidently quite contented, and awaited events with perfect calm. He even seemed to enjoy Brogard's unsavory fare. Marguerite wondered how so much hatred could lurk in one human being against another. Suddenly, as she watched Chauvelin, a sound caught her ear, which turned her very heart to stone. And yet that sound was not calculated to inspire anyone with horror, for it was merely the cheerful sound of a gay, fresh voice singing lustily, God save the king! Join us next week for Chapter 25 and Beyond of The Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Orsi. If you're enjoying our show, please do take a moment and send us a review at 1001 Greatest Love Stories, especially you Apple listeners. I know it's not easy to sit down and take the five or ten minutes it takes to put one up, but they do help us in a big way, and October is sweeps month for us. Reviews help us a lot. Also, we appreciate it when you share our show with others, and even help them subscribe to this podcast or other similar 1001 podcasts. Thanks for being great fans. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.